0: Enjoying the weather? Yes. Now I have an excuse to wear a coat. Finally. Um. Okay, I'm gonna start. (laughs) We're uh, we're taught to always give credit to other people when you can. So so I'm letting you know up front that I heard this story from Chuck Swindoll. Uh, He's a He's the pastor of Stonebriar Community Church in Texas and former president and chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary. It's my alma mater, obviously. Um, It's about a young man who went in for a checkup at the doctor and and after extensive testing, the doctor tells him, I'm sorry, but it's bad news. Uh, You have a terminal disease and you only have six months to live. The man is distraught and weeps and asks, Doc, what can I do? What do I do? The doc says, you really want my advice? And this guy says, of course. Doctor says, all right, here's what you do. You buy a 1965 Dodge truck, all right? It's the worst truck they ever made. Uh, You'll be lucky if you get it running. Next thing you should do is you marry the ugliest orneriest woman you can find who can't cook and snores like a chainsaw. And the last thing you should do is take your wife and your truck up to Minnesota just before winter and live in a trailer park. So the man, the man responds exactly how you're responding in your head right now, right? Uh, Doc, how is marrying an ugly woman and buying a broke down truck and moving to frigid Minnesota going to help me? the doctor replied, you might only have six months to live, but it'll feel like an eternity. (laughs) Yeah. So what's the point? If you want life to seem long or feel long, choose the most difficult path. Right? When we suffer, we just want it to end as quickly as possible, but for some of us, Uh, We've been in a season of prolonged suffering. And no matter where we turn, the suffering is still there and we wonder if it will ever go away. It might be a season of loneliness or grief over loss of a loved one or a relationship or ongoing financial problems or sickness. Um, And the longer the suffering goes on, the more we wonder where God is and what he is going to do to ease our suffering. And it's at that point that we have a choice to make. Because suffering is unique, right? Uh, people can make intellectual arguments for why we shouldn't believe in God or, or tell us we're wasting our time following God and, and we can do our mental jujitsu on those and, and chop those arguments up and throw them away. Uh, but, but suffering has a way of touching our, our soul and make us despondent and despairing and and paralyze us from doing anything. Uh, last week, Pastor Randy talked about how we need to, what, calm down, don't panic, and let God work in our crisis moment. But what about when the situation is enduring, right? When there's no miraculous moment where God parts the Red Sea and then we march out in victory, what, what happens when we're in the wilderness for what seems like 40 years? Um, how will we view God then? I don't think it's a coincidence that Pastor Randy and I have consecutive messages uh, that are connected to the Israelites in their struggle with God. That's, that's where I'm going. Um, so either we are a people who has been complaining and God is trying to get our attention through these stories, or there is something coming where complaining and giving up is going to be the easiest reaction. And God wants to prepare us beforehand. So I hope we're paying attention. So, so we'll answer that question today of how do we endure the prolonged suffering in obedience? And we're going to start in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And from there, we'll jump into multiple passages in the book of Numbers, almost to the opposite end of the book uh, of the Bible, actually. Uh, and from these texts, we're going to see four steps that can galvanize our heart against despondency, and despair and discouragement when that suffering breaks out in our lives. And so in order to endure and persevere, we must do four things. Wake up. We must wake up. We must grow up. We must look up so we can get up and not be immobilized by suffering. Start in Hebrews chapter 12, verse three. The author says, consider him, him being Jesus, consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So our first point is that in order to avoid giving up so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted, we need to wake up. We need a reality check. We need a wake-up call. Um, I asked, asked some guys in our church uh, about the first time they realized life might have some real challenges. Uh, one said it was when they realized that they don't get summer break anymore from school. They gotta, we got to work every day in the summer? Oh, no. <laughs> Another one said it was when his wife's father gave her to him in marriage and said, you, you take care of my daughter now. It's these wake-up call, reality check moments that, that can change our perspective. We need to wake up and realize that our suffering on the path of obedience to Christ has been ordained by none other than God himself. Yes. We have no luxury of getting God off the hook for the struggles and challenges we face in life. We don't get to say that these are just random happenings that are just, they're just the result of living in a fallen, sinful world. Look at this passage. The struggle against sin and hostility to our obedience is directly linked to the Lord's discipline. But as the author notes, it's easy to forget, right? Have you forgotten So, we need to wake up to the reality that our struggles are designed by God Himself, and that that specific knowledge should influence how we respond to those struggles. So, knowing they come from God, will that change your attitude when hard times come? Don't be so sure. Oh, yeah, of course. Don't be so sure this text tells us that it is possible to, what, regard lightly or view as worthless or insignificant or unnecessary the discipline of the Lord. It is possible to be worn out by it and feel like it means that God has abandoned us or that he does not care about us. The perfect example of this is is the Israelites when, when they're wandering in the wilderness, right? We're going to look at multiple examples of their complaining because we see how easy it is to forget and complain and rebel and even blaspheme against God when misfortune hits us. First passage, Numbers chapter 11, all right? We're going to go through a lot of them and they're all pretty close to each other. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some, some, some outlying parts of the camp. Right? So the people complain, and what does God do? He sends a warning shot. There's a warning shot outside the camp, going to burn up a couple things outside the camp. Is that going to get their attention? Uh, They go to Moses, they say, oh, Moses, we're sorry. Moses prays, and and God puts out the fire. Verse 4, completely separate incident. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So now what do they do? They go back in their mind to, oh, Egypt. Oh, remember how good it was in Egypt? See, we have this tendency to rewrite history and say things were way better than they actually were back then. They were were slaves. They were put to hard labor, uh, the early chapters of Exodus tells that they cried out to God. Uh, last week, Pastor Randy said that, that, you know, they said they never asked to leave, uh, except they lied. They did. They begged God to save them. And then when he did, and then all oh, some challenges come along, oh God, why did you do this? And so, so how does God respond to this? Well, he gives them meat. He gives them more meat than they ever wanted. It says, uh, he he sends quail, right? This is where the quail story comes. And it says, the text says, while the the meat was still in their teeth, God sent a plague on them because it just confirmed that they, they would have rather had Egypt than what God was giving them. All right? Moving quickly. Numbers 14. This is where Moses has sent the spies into the land, the 12 spies, and the 12 spies come back with a report and they say the land is great, right? Milk and honey, all that good stuff, great. But there's giants there and they'll kill us if we try to go. And, then, and this is how the people respond to that. Uh, 14, verse one. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this, in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? See, now they're taking another step. They're not just longing for Egypt. They're thinking, hey, hey, we should we should actually go back. Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Do you see how it progresses? The first story, they didn't say anything about Egypt. Second story, they're like, oh, Egypt. Oh, yeah, there was Egypt. Now they're saying, hey, let's go back to Egypt. Oh, and we don't want Moses anymore either. How does God deal with them? He says, oh, you're scared that if you go into the land, you'll die? How about this? You're going to die in the wilderness, and you thought your kids were going to die if you took them into the land. Your kids are going to go into the land, and you're not. Number 16. The rebellion has organized. There's people, Korah, uh, Dathan, Abiram, these people have organized and they, they, are choos- they are setting themselves up as alternatives to Moses, God's chosen leader. And so Moses wants to actually meet with them and negotiate and you know, try to talk some sense into them. This is what he says, number 16, verse 12. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. So they've said, we are not on board. We're doing our own thing. You have failed. You said you were going to take us into the land. It's not happening. We're going to die here. So we're done. How does God deal with these people? The ground opens up underneath them and all of them die. And finally, Numbers 21. This will be the last passage we look at in in the Old Testament. Numbers 21, uh, verses 4 and 5. From Mount Hor they set out by the, way to, by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom because Edom wouldn't let them pass through. So they have to go around. And the people became what? Impatient along the way. And the people spoke against who? God. And against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Egypt. To die in the wilderness, for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, I don't know how you can say you have no food and then turn around and say you hate the worthless food, which probably just goes to the point of exaggeration when we hit problems. Um, Do you see the progression? At first they just complained. And then then they long for Egypt. And then they start making plans to actually go back to Egypt. And then they start talking about Moses and, and they reject Moses, God's chosen leader. And now in this passage, who have they rejected? God himself. So we need to be careful. The more we complain, the tendency it is for our rebellion to become more brazen. Um, we, we see uh, in, in verse five in uh, Hebrews 12, it says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Here, the, uh, the Israelites say the food is worthless. The Septuagint says it's, they, they hate this light bread, right? That's one way to translate it, as light bread. So they say it's light, it's worthless, it's insignificant. And, and we can do the same thing. We can say that the discipline that the Lord is putting us through is insignificant and worthless, just like the Israelites. So, so we see that even knowing God is leading us and is directly involved in our trials doesn't mean we're going to respond the right way. Because suffering hurts but we don't get to respond any way we want. Uh, you may have heard this idea that it's, that it's okay to complain to God because uh, he can handle it, and the Psalms are filled with examples of David complaining and being authentic, right? But what we don't get to do is accuse God of evil. It's to tell him that what he is doing in our life is worthless, and unnecessary. You can say, you can say it hurts. You can say you have desperate needs. You can say, God, I don't understand. But you don't get to be ungrateful and say you'd be better off without him. What do the Israelites sound like when they cry out and exaggerate and throw tantrums? Sound like children, right? That's why they're called the children of Israel, uh, which brings us to the need for our next step. Our first step was to wake up, our next step is to grow up. Hebrews 12, verse 7 through 11. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We must grow up and not desire to be children forever if we want to endure and persevere. Growing up is realizing that you're going to have to do a lot of things that you don't want to do. You heard the word discipline over and over and over in that passage. But what is discipline in this context? Is it, is it us doing something bad and then God beating us until we learn not to do it again? No. Discipline here is the word paideia. Okay? which is, is where we get our word uh, pediatrician. So this is, this is essentially the Greek word that means child training. Do children just know how to be an adult and be mature and responsible instinctively? Are they, are they taught a lesson once and then they get it, right? They've mastered it and they don't need to be taught it again. Of course not. No, they need need to be taught repeatedly and with a sufficient amount of challenge and repetition so that eventually it sinks in. It's a process. So when we read this passage and we see the word discipline, we shouldn't just see it as God correcting us because we did something wrong, although that is certainly a part of it. But it is also just Training experiences we need to go through in order to actually grow and mature. Discipline is the process, it's not a one time event, but a process that trains us our whole lives. There is no spiritual retirement to become holy. And in our spiritual lives, it is God who is directing this process. So it's January, right? And lots of people make New Year's resolutions, and about 90% of them will fail. And a lot of those resolutions have to do with fitness and getting in shape. Um, But most people quit by February. Why? Because they don't see the progress they want to see as fast as they want to see it. And the fact is, most people just don't know how to train. They just walk in and randomly throw some weights around and you know, do a couple of exercises and say, well, I hope this is doing something. Um, <clears throat> but it's the people, the people who stick with it are the best. The people who stick with it best are the ones who hire a personal trainer who actually knows what they need, checks their diet, holds them accountable, and builds a program for them that is actually challenging but the trainer can't do the work for you there's a concept in bodybuilding it's called training to failure right in each set you have to push your muscles you have to challenge them enough so that they get to near or complete failure that you could not do another rep no matter how hard you tried and if you want to see results That's what you have to do. You have to push your muscles to failure. And so most people aren't training consistently enough or with enough intensity to force the body to change. The body wants to stay the same. So you have to force it to grow. And so guess what? When you put your faith in Jesus, God became your personal trainer in spiritual fitness. He is going to push you. He's going to bring you to near failure. He's going to put you through things that you don't want to do but are necessary for you to grow up and give up patterns of sinful behavior and thinking and immaturity and become more like Christ. So what can you... Uh, Expect in your training program. According to this text, our training is going to be multiple things. Uh, Number one, it's going to be purposeful. It is for discipline that you have to endure. It's, It's not meaningless. You're not enduring just for the sake of enduring. It's discipline. It's training you. It's purposeful. It's proof. All right? God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. When we're suffering, we want to say, why does God have to discipline me? What, can I just not be disciplined and God leave me alone and it'll be fine, right? I'm, I'm not that bad, it'll be okay. But then that means that you're asking him to treat you as though you were not his child. Look at the the problem of fatherlessness in the world, right? The statistics are clear. Sons without fathers, to train them and bring them up, tend to be, not always, but it's the trend, they tend to be far less disciplined and make worse decisions for their future. And so, in the ancient world, the illegitimate child had no legal right to any part of the family inheritance. Do you want God to treat you as someone who is unworthy of his inheritance? I didn't think so. The next thing our training is our training is perfect, it's for our good, right? He says some fathers. They tried to train you, they did their best, they just thought what was right to him. God is not guessing in His training. God is not making mistakes. Everything He's doing is per- like we may not know. We may not be able to figure it out in the moment, or even 10 years down the road. We may not know exactly why we had to go through that particular discipline and training. But God does. Right. And so our fathers, our parents tried their best. They tried to train us and they don't always, you know, they don't hit a home run every time. And so just as an aside, some of us need to forgive our parents. Because we think they didn't do a great job. Um, but this text is telling us that. Yeah fathers are just human. they're just human and so that's like one of the biggest lessons that kids wake up and learn about their parents is that oh my parents are just human they're not perfect and so parents need to realize that about themselves and their kids right none of us are perfect let's give each other some grace but god is leading us perfectly and it's also perfect because why it leads to holiness. It leads to holiness, not necessarily happiness 100% of the time. You won't always look cool and hip and chill and just have a vibe, you know? Like, it's not, not everything is going to be like that. Our training is going to be painful. It's just the reality of what it takes to change. It's painful in the moment but it's teaching us something and it's toughening us up it's provisional right that that is that means it's temporary it's painful in the moment but later after the training has ended that means it's it's not going to last forever this is encouraging to me it feels like forever it feels painful but it's not forever. And finally, it's, it's productive, right? He says, later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, those who have allowed themselves to be trained by it. Peace, you might say, it doesn't feel peaceful. It actually feels like chaos. But what if you actually went through the process and changed the way that God wants you to change instead of fighting it. There will be peace at the end of that. So when you wake up and then grow up and submit your will to the Lord's will and his chosen curriculum for your personal discipline, you'll have peace. Why? Because you're becoming more holy You're not slamming your head against the wall, doing things your own way, and experiencing more consequences as a result. Uh, We don't have time, but later on in this passage, he, he talks about how accepting the Lord's discipline should help us to get along with everyone. It should prevent bitterness from sprouting up. It should prevent sexual immorality because we haven't given up And rejected his discipline and said, well, God doesn't care about me, so so I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to sleep with whoever I want. And I'm going to be angry at whoever I want. I'm going to be as unpleasant with whoever I think has uh, betrayed me. If you're caught up in those sins of lust and anger and resentment and apathy, this text says... That it might just be because you're actually bitter at God and not actually the situation that has caused your discontentment. Maybe your rebellion isn't as blatant and obvious as Israel's. Maybe it's just this quiet removal of yourself from everything. It's the same kind of rebellion. We just haven't said it out loud. And so we need to grow up and accept God's child training that he's doing in our lives. Thirdly, as we accept the Lord's discipline, right, we've waken up, we've grown up. Now we look up. We need to look up. We need to look up beyond our circumstances, not ignoring them, not minimizing them, not pretending like they don't exist, but keeping our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verse two of this chapter, we didn't read it, but this verse two of this chapter tells us looking to Jesus, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Verse three tells us that when we consider or carefully contemplate Christ's experiences with suffering, and that he actually went completely to death, we won't grow weary or lose heart. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews is about Jesus and his greatness, and why he should be the focus. He is. Here's a list of things that he is better than. Okay? He is a greater being than angels. He is a greater leader than Moses. He is greater than the tabernacle. He is a greater sacrifice than the sacrifices at the temple. He is a greater priest than Melchizedek. This, this chapter tells us that he is the greatest example we could emulate if we want to endure suffering. He is greater than our suffering, but we have to look up to him. The last passage in Numbers that we looked at, it was uh, God responded to that with the serpents, right? And that's where Moses put the serpent on the pole, and if people looked, they would be healed. Jesus tells us that that story was actually about himself. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus applies it to our salvation through the cross and so that's surely true but here he is our example to remind us what it means to truly endure through suffering in the here and now looking to him right see so there's 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 no casual way to endure discipline it has to be intentional it's not going to happen Naturally, it requires an intentional refocusing of our lives on the person of Jesus Christ. So, if you expect that you're going to just coast through life, and you know, I might go to church once a week or once a month. Who knows? Uh, but uh, you know, and then, but you're still going to achieve all your goals. And you're going to have this perfect little family, and maybe you know you'll have some mild challenges that pop up that you have to overcome, but you know you you get through those and it's fine, and with no real need for Jesus Himself, you're in for a rude awakening if you want to be a genuine believer, but if you've chosen to keep Christ at the center, the suffering won't destroy you. And you won't grow weary and give up. So we wake up, we grow up, we look up, and finally, get up. Verses 12 and 13, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Get back in the race. Get back in the race. Have you seen the body language of of a marathon runner when he's completely exhausted? Right, what are they doing? They're limping, and they're wobbling. They, uh, They might drift off course. They might even fall down and sit down and decide, I'm, I'm just, I just can't get up. I just can't get up. These verses are telling us, get back in the race. Stand up. Some of us have gotten weary and we've taken ourselves out of the race completely. Jesus is asking you to get back in. You may think, I'm, I'm just too hurt to go on. But what happens when we're injured? We need to be healed. That's how therapy works, right? You don't, you you get injured, and then the therapist grabs that body part and starts twisting it all around. I mean, appropriately, of course. But the point is, you have to work the injured part. It has to be moved to to get that uh, mobility back. So maybe, maybe you've been thinking about the good old days in Egypt. Longing for a time past when things were good. But God has you in a time of discipline now. And you don't know how to move forward with what he has for you in this new season. Many times we don't, we don't even realize that's what we've been doing. What's your Egypt? Egypt? Is it a previous season or relationship or opportunity that you wish you could have back? Has it caused you to opt out, to check out of the current season of discipline that God is trying to bring you through? Has it caused an unspoken resentment against God that has immobilized you? What would it look like for you to get back in the race? Maybe, maybe it's joining a small group and being vulnerable and actually talking about it with someone. Maybe sit down with an elder and talk. Maybe it's as simple as reading your Bible. Commit to reading it again. You know what your specific situation is. You know how hard it is. I'm just asking you, and Jesus is asking you, don't run away from the discipline that he is trying to put you through. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Lord, listening to Pastor Randy pray and just hearing so many people and so many needs and pain, and Lord, we ask for grace to be able to persevere. Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts in the most discouraging situations that we would be reminded to look to Jesus, that we are not alone, that he will never forsake us. Lord, it is hard. And some of us think about times when things weren't so hard and we wish we could go back to those days lord i pray that you would just encourage our hearts help us to see that there will be peace by going through the discipline you have for us now the season the challenge show us that it's okay for us to change that that you never intended for us to stay the same forever God, help us to grow up into Christ so that we may walk with him and become more useful to you so that your glory will expand. In Jesus' name, amen.